Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a fantastic little dance around the house. It meets, must mean it's nine o'clock in the morning and you've just been listening to the Radio Marinara theme song and that's the show you're listening to now on 102.73 Triple R. Whether you're listening to us on the podcast in the future or online across the world, it's great to have you with us. My name's Cade Mills and I'm joined by... Fum. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Fum. It was... Um, we're all had a kilter this morning. Tim's not in. David did such a fantastic show, so thank you to him for filling in for Tim Thorpe. And Bron's been missing in action for a few weeks. So I know, I know. Let's just hope we uh, we do her justice today. Hope she's listening in. Get yeah. well soon. And I was joking that she's um, actually off. She had an operation to become Bionic Bron so she can pay f- play for the megahertz and get us over the line for a three-peat. And, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. I love it. It means that she can do Radio Marinara forever. Yeah. Well, that's going to happen anyway. <laughs> uh, on today's show, we've got quite a big one, as per usual. We're kicking off with um, a friend of both of ours, but someone that you'll be bringing in to have a bit of a chat, which is... Yeah, we're talking to uh, Mark Rodrigue from Parks Victoria today uh, because not only... uh, do we have 20 years of marine parks to celebrate this year? 20 years? Yes, 20 years. Wow, and uh, he will also uh, be chatting to us about uh, urchin callings and how are we going to look after these marine parks for the next 20 years, hopefully. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a tricky future. one too, given it's a native species. Mm-hmm. It's something that there's been a lot of um, conversations being have around, had around that. So yep. it'd be really good to get him on and hear about that. And then following up from that, um, I've got a guest in the online um, Dr. Alice Clement, who's a paleontologist. And so I had a chat to her on Friday and I don't really understand anything that she's doing, but it is absolutely (laughs) fascinating. She was able to talk at a level that I could understand, but it's basically around lungfish brains. So as most people may or may not know that lungfish are kind of our fishy relatives, they're the ones that actually walk, came out of the water and started walking on land. So that's a very early evolutionary stage. And they're still around, which is what is so amazing. And it's, it's, is... it's not one of those things in the past that's just in a fossil record, but they're actually alive and well. You can actually see them at the at the museum as well. That is actually, that's very right. And Alice is um, a lungfish lover, a lungfish enthusiast, and someone who just loves talking about it. So we can't wait to get her on to talk um, about all things lungfish. And then following up with oh, a very close friend of yours and a friend of the show. Yeah, we'll follow up with Neil Blake, our Port Phillip Baykeeper. He'll be uh, talking about the penguins of St Kilda hatching chicks right now as we speak. Right. In the middle of winter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so we'll be chatting a little bit about that and also about um, potential plans for getting a Maribyrnong river keeper. So that's very exciting. Oh, so there's all kinds of keepers popping up all over the place. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And they're necessary. So it's uh, it's good news. And don't forget, we're also catching up with uh, Dr. Elodie Campras today to check out where the spider crabs are at. 
Oh, that's right. I completely slipped through the run sheet that one. Um, yeah, Elodie's going to join us. She's got some um, events coming up where she can tell people more about her research and what she's been finding out, which will be exciting. Now, do we want to do weather or do we want to do news for? Uh, let's do some weather first for people who uh, can't wait to get out there in the cool bay after the show. Um, today is partly cloudy and patchy morning fog in the northeastern suburbs. Uh, we've got slight chance of a shower about the Dandenongs early in this morning, but mostly zero chance of rain everywhere else. Winds are northerly 15 to 20 k's an hour and becoming really light in the late afternoon and then becoming northeasterly in the late evening. Uh, for tides, Port Phillip Heads, the high tide was at 8.31 a.m. this morning and your next low will be at 1.15 p.m. today. All right, and I noticed this morning lots of people are jogging, so, you know, if you're into that, if that's your thing. Yeah, with their puffer jackets on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And beanies. How'd you go get amongst it? Now you've got some news for us too. Yeah, fun. I do have some news. Look, it's uh, it's a little bit hard to chew this one um, on, in the early morning. That's why I was starting with it. Um, but researchers from the Global Oceanic Environmental Survey Foundation, uh, based in Edinburgh University in Scotland, have actually found that 90% of plankton has disappeared from the oceans now. So is that biomass or is that diversity? Uh, that's, is it? yeah, pr- um, I'm not sure, but I think it is like in general biomass. So what they've done is they they did about 13 or uh, 500 data points, you know, and 13 vessels were trawling the Atlantic Ocean and the Caribbean, and they expected to find up to five visible pieces of plankton in every 10 liters of water, but they only found an average of less than one plankton. Wow. Yeah. So that's um, that's that's pretty worrying, um, and the causes of the decline is. Also ocean acidification, but mostly they're citing that it's chemical pollution from plastics and farm fertilizers and pharmaceuticals in the water. Oh, so these are impacts that we haven't, we're only just yeah. scratching the surface of and starting to yeah, learn Yeah, exactly. So, so it's, it's really more than man-made chemicals in cosmetics and plastics and sunscreen and drugs and fertilizers and stuff. It is proving to be more toxic to underwater life and it just really kills the plankton. And then once you get the ocean acidification on top of that, it's, it's basically uh, a natural disaster. So... Um, yeah, it's it's quite a worry um, because obviously we can't live without our oceans, and plankton is that that first layer of the the tropic, you know, of the food chain, really. No, we can't. And I guess, you know, what can we do? Like start reducing, obviously, chemical use and things yeah, like that and yeah, look so at really, alternative natural ways instead of yeah, what's Yeah, so really us. looking at water quality, uh, preventing pollution and really cleaning it up and, and, you know, having clean air and clean rivers. Um, and so the researchers are saying, like, you know, we could potentially live with climate change, but we can't survive the actual destruction of the oceans. So um, good news, though, is that he said the head researcher said that during the pandemic, during, because of the lack of tourism, ecosystems started to recover and fish have also returned and coral reefs have recovered they found out so you know when there are no people all of a sudden (laughs) it starts becoming better so yeah it's a it's a worry it is um it's interesting the solution is for us just to disappear for a little while yeah maybe it is go on holiday yeah um well in other news and this is a bit of a lead on to next week there was a paper that just come out about stingrays vocalizing so we know that you know whales, dolphins, we know some fish do it, and we now have records and there's a paper out about stingrays vocalising. That's amazing. Singing stingrays. Yeah, and I think the sting cool rays. part is I think some of this stuff is actually coming from like citizen science, so people taking video footage and stuff of stingrays and they're like, hang on, that noise is not from anything else, it's from a stingray. So we've had Joni Pinney-Fitzsimmons on, um, the author of like the Stingray Diaries, and she actually got in touch with me and said, look, I've got to get on air and talk about this. This is amazing. So we're going to have her on next week. But oh. just letting you know that that research is out there and being done and it's a bit of a tease for next week. Um, 
which will be very exciting. So, estamos escuchando Radio Marinada en tres triple R. Tres triple R, indeed. And eels at the art center. That sounds really great. Welcome back to Radio Marinara, everybody. Your program about all things wet and salty on three triple R. And that was Baker Boy with Cool as Hell, and we were all dancing in the studio here. The, the spirit of Chris Gill just <laughs> wafted through. Get down, get down. Oh, so great. And uh, and I'll tell you who was watching us dance in the in the studio from Skype. It's Mark Rodrigue joining us um, again. He is a long-term guest on Radio Marinara and he's the program leader of the Marine and Coasts at Parks Victoria. Good morning, Mark, and welcome back. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Kate. Great to see your dance moves on the, uh, in the studio. <laughs> we have to do it on a Sunday to wake up a little bit. Oh, Mark, it's great to have you uh, have you back on the show. And um, today, well, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the 20-year anniversary of the Marine Parks in Victoria. Well, thank you very much, Fun. I'll take that one for the team. Um, that's the collective team <laughs> of community agencies and Parks Victoria, everyone who's working and uh, has worked over the last 20 years to make these things a reality. So thank you very much on yeah. behalf of all of us, including you. Look, it's it's, pr- it's a pretty special thing. And uh, you're celebrating in a big way as well this year with a lot of our community webinars. You've got one coming up on the 10th of August uh, called Searching for Urchin. <laughs> which I love. Correct. <laughs> Searching for urchin. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were just wondering why why is the focus on urchins so much at the moment? I know we're going to get right into that, but um, what's, the, what's the webinar going to be about? All right, so just to take a step back, the webinars themselves are part of our sort of celebrations. We're putting on monthly events um, to basically talk about some aspects of marine protected area management. They started off on uh, World Oceans Day with a fantastic uh, a webinar with Dr Mark Norman and some special guests, uh, which hopefully uh, many people have seen. And if you haven't missed it, uh, you can go back to our website and have a look. But look, certainly uh, the Urchins uh, webinar is a chance to have a bit of discussion about one of our... Uh, emerging challenges, I guess, with, with um, over the last 10 years, and this is certainly something that has emerged in the last 10 years as a problem, um, we've started to see uh, large areas of kelp across Victoria uh, disappear as a consequence of marauding, invasive, spiky tennis balls. And that's, uh, that's essentially what we're talking about here. Um, and the, the webinar itself will be a chance to uh, touch base with both some researchers. We're going to have Dr. Paul, Paul Carnell, who's uh, probably one of the leading researchers on urchins in Victoria, uh, to talk a little bit about the problems and how they've emerged. But we're also going to take the opportunity to touch base with some of our rangers who are actively working on these problems. So we'll meet, um, meet up with Mike Irvine, who works at Beware Reef in East Gippsland, uh, where we've done some great work there and plenty more to do. Uh, but we'll also meet up with a couple of our marine rangers in Port Phillip Bay to talk about the great work that's happening now uh, with community and also with some contractors. Yeah, and the tricky thing with this too is, Mark, is it's not just one species of urchin. It's not like this blanket, like, oh, let's just deal with this. You've actually got a couple of species that are going on. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about, I guess, the geography with the urchins and the problems and where they've sort of been occurring? And, And it's not just in marine reserves. This is something that is occurring across the whole coastline. But what are the areas that you've been working in um, across the coast? Absolutely, Kate. And look, there are, there are probably 19, 20 different species of urchins in Port Phillip Bay alone, um, and we're not talking about all of them. So urchins 
are native animals. And I think that's probably the most important thing to understand at the beginning is that they are part of our systems. They are a natural component of our ecosystems. They actually play important ecological roles. They, uh, they're a grazer. So, you know, like most other grazers in communities, they play an important role in vegetation, uh, impacting on vegetation, but they're also important food sources for some things as well. So let's just start with the premise that these are actually native animals. Unfortunately, though, in a couple of parts of the state, two species, uh, one in particular uh, in eastern Victoria called Centrostephanus rogersii, or probably easier to call it the black-spined urchin. It's a it's a great big thing, probably about the size of a soccer ball in terms of uh, when you uh, yeah. consider the spines, etc. Um, it's a big one. Um, it's quite common right across southeastern Australia, so it's not just in Victoria. It's uh, historical range is probably southern New South Wales, and this is one of the species that's responded particularly uh, strongly to slight increases in temperature. So the strengthening of the East Australia current has resulted in the larvae of these things surviving uh, more readily and therefore population boom. Um, and we're seeing these things creating problems in southern New South Wales, uh, Victoria, eastern Victoria and also on the east coast of Tassie. Uh, the other one that's actually a problem is something called the purple spine sea urchin or Heliosidaris erythrogramma. Now that's one that's actually Again, a very typical reef animal. It's uh, one that many uh, listeners will be familiar with if they dive or snorkel around Port Phillip Bay or many of the reefs uh, on along the coast of Victoria. It's called the purple urchin, although it is probably a misnomer in the sense that it does come in a whole variety of rainbow. It almost should be called the rainbow urchin because of the fact it comes in whites and greens and browns and reds as well as purple. But this is, this is a much smaller urchin, probably about the size of a tennis ball when they're fully grown. Um, it's uh, had impacts both in Port Phillip Bay where it's literally stripped uh, kelp from many reefs across the, the entire northern section of the bay. Uh, but it's also uh, quite surprisingly turned up in uh, South Gippsland in uh, Nurumunga Marina Coastal Park, sort of in that corner inlet area, where it's munched its way through quite large areas of uh, seagrass. And it's actually removed several sort of, well, just to use the standard of uh, standard metric of <laughs> MCGs. <MCG> sizes, <laughs> it's munched its way through about four or five MCGs of seagrass and corner inlet. So they're the two species that we're dealing with. Uh, across the state. And Mark, it's, uh, it's really interesting because you've, um, Parks Victoria has started a culling program and a lot of uh, community members who look after the marine parks uh, are helping with that. Um, how, do you, how do you decide when it is time to start culling a native animal? That's that's Look, that's probably the, uh, the most important question here because obviously parks are set up to protect wildlife. And as I said before, you know, urchins, uh, both of the two species, the problem urchins, we call them, like to call them overabundant, just simply because of the fact that we do recognise them as native animals, but they are in, for various causes, uh, in numbers that are actually causing problems to us. So in terms of actually understanding, uh, understanding the issues, we need to actually take a really good hard look at what are the problems themselves, what are the impacts that these urchins are having on their environment, what are the consequences of particularly loss of habitat on other things. And again, remember, parks are set up essentially to be uh, protectors of biodiversity, a whole range of living things, large and small. And when you lose one of the fundamental habitats within your park, uh, in this case, the kelp forest, uh, you lose all the critters that live in, under and around the kelp forest as well. So 
the decisions to actually remove urchins from the park is is done after looking at evidence. It's looking essentially at what the likely outcomes are um, and considering those and weighing up the potential risks associated with removing the urchins. We've done a, a very comprehensive in all of the three sites where we actively managed uh, urchins, what we call an overabundant native animal management plan, which we're happy to share with listeners if anyone's interested. But this really looks at the at the science behind what does actually changing those environments and trying to restore those kelp systems actually mean for us in the park? Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about the science, but um, often the science gets left out of some of these arguments. Has there been anyone that's upset about the urchins? Has there been any sort of blowback in any sort of way? And I mean, I know personally the community are right behind it, but as with anything, there's always um, people that don't agree. Has there been anything like that? Have you had to deal with that yet? Yeah, look, there's been a little bit of discussion. I guess one of the things that, that does concern people when you start to play, you know, let's just say use the term play God, basically change systems, have a human, you know, decision to actually make something happen within a within a natural environment. There there are going to be those that think, well, we should leave things get on with themselves, let let nature sort of take its course and, and uh, take that kind of approach. Look, that, that can work when you've got undisturbed systems that are in, you know, relatively pristine or healthy conditions where there aren't pressures on them uh, to continue to degrade. Unfortunately, in both cases, in the case of the East Gippsland urchins, uh, with a, which is actually very much a consequence of warming waters, or the cases of the urchins in uh, South Gippsland or in Port Phillip Bay, these overabundant animals are actually causing massive problems. So um, some of the natural systems that actually are things that keep urchins in, in check in natural communities are things like uh, large rock lobsters or big snapper, large fish that basically can actually take an urchin and, you know, literally strip it open and get the nice juicy bits out of the middle, which is what they like to eat. But um, that in, in many places you would expect by protecting areas, you're going to get a, a restoration of some of those larger predator uh, predator animals. Um, this takes time, however, and again, we're losing species and particularly losing those important vital habitats uh, now. Um, the time it's going to take for restoration of those predator uh, numbers to restore essentially the balance is going to take some time. So we do need to give it a little bit of a hand along the way. And again, I know that there are a few people who are a little bit concerned about this, but we're very happy to engage and talk about the actual rationale as to why we're doing this now. Yeah, as what I heard from community members who who have been concerned is that they're afraid it's a band-aid. So they're like, you know, we have to look at what what makes the ecosystem go out of balance in the first place and then, you know, fix that at the source. So what do we know about that? Do we know why they have become so overabundant? Well, in the case of the ones in Gippsland, we're talking directly about climate change. So, yes, let's get on with it. Fix climate change and then we'll be right. And I think there'll be a few other Easy. people quite happy about that. So no, no small, no small uh, challenge in that space. Uh, in relation to the ones in Port Phillip, um, it's, there, there's some work that Paul uh, Carnell in particular has done that looks at the relationship between nutrient inflows into the bay and, um, and urchins, uh, basically, changing the nutrient environment again at Port Phillip Bay is something that, that is actually being worked on 
now. Uh, Melbourne Water and the catchment, catchment management authorities across the state actively try to improve water quality. But again, we're talking about long-term changes that have occurred. Uh, these things haven't sort of happened overnight. They've sort of been a, the end point of a whole range of, of, of issues. So um, yeah, we need to actually look at these, these things from a long-term perspective. Well, it sounds like that uh, webinar on the 10th of August is going to be uh, full of great information. Where can people sign up, Mark? Okay, so for all the webinars and also to see a whole lot of new stuff that's happening around our marine national parks, jump onto Parks Victoria's website, just Google Parks Victoria or www.parks.vic.gov.au and you can find all the good stuff there. Awesome. And we will put a link on the Facebook page of Radio Marinara as well. Oh, Mark, as always, it has been a pleasure having you. Um, and yeah, good luck with the rest of the celebration and, of course, uh, getting those urchins back in line. Yeah, good on you. Thanks, fam. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> Lovely to see your faces. Bye for now. That was Mark Rodrigue, the program leader of the Marine and Coasts at Parks Victoria, talking about urchins. Alright, <laughs> you're back on 3RRR, the show you're listening to is Radio Marinara, it is now 9.25 and we are going to be joined on the line by Dr. Alady Compress from Deakin University. Good, <laughs> there we go, there's the noise. Alady, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, look, we're we're doing well here. We're working with our Bron at the moment, but we're we're getting this sorted. <laughs> <laughs> now, spider crabs, spider crabs, spider crabs. It's all anyone's been talking about this winter. Um, <laughs> ah, Nerida has just reminded me that I forgot something. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, spider crabs, Alady, what's what's going on? I know you've got some webinars coming up where people can sort of learn more. You've been giving tidbits to everyone along the way, but if they really want to dig into this, what what have you got coming up? Yeah, that's right. So, um, the Centre for Integrative Ecology, which I'm part of, is starting um, a wild webinar series. And, uh, yeah, I'll be exciting to kick that off next week, so on Tuesday, uh, 7.30 to 8.30 Melbourne time. Um, so people can register for free. Really, everyone's welcome to join. Um, so if people go to the uh, Centre of Integrative Ecology website, um, they'll find under Events, Wild Webinar 2022, they can find the link to register for free. So I'll be excited to yeah tell everybody what we got up to with Spider Crabs this season, uh, the field work that we just finished, and um, yeah, sort of put it in the broader context of, you know, the amazing biodiversity that we have in the Great Southern Reef. And now we've had you on and like one of the things that, you know, we've been talking about is that, you know, you did something which is such seems like such a simple thing to do, which is just sex the crabs. So you worked out, you know, how many males are there, how many that is females. Finding not, out not, what sex they are. Yes, not have <laughs> <laughs> just you. making that really clear. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Yes. Uh, and then you know, you had your cameras set up, um, you know, I guess, what were the results again as far as just working out what this population of crabs is? Is it a whole lot of uh, males? Is it a whole lot of females? Is it 50-50? What's sort of going on with these aggregations? Yeah, so, um, yeah, with, with this work, we found out... It's, we have to remember it's only one point in time, though, uh, but the... the um, yeah, the, the sample was biased towards males, so about four to five times more males than females that we uh, we wow. accessed at the end of that aggregation in St. Leonard's. Um, and we also, yeah, so we, we measured them, and uh, it seems like, yeah, males are, are bigger than females. Um, 
So, yeah, it, again, it's, yeah, as you said, pretty basic data. But um, for me, it's exciting because it's work that's never been done before. And it's quite important to know, um, yeah, what are the aggregations actually made of in terms of, yeah, mostly males, mostly females, or uh, is it a mix or is it a mix of sizes? So, yeah, I, unfortunately, we have, you know, next to no data to compare that to, although I'm excited to um, to say that I'll be going to the museum, Museum Victoria, and accessing the specimens there and actually measuring and, and sexing more spider crabs so we have a bit more data to compare that to. That's another great plug for museums and just the important work that they play just by storing stuff away for who knows what. They're sort of... Yeah, you never know when you need it. Exactly, yeah. yeah, and I think that's fantastic. Now, there's also... Is it a virtual crab tour coming up as well, Elodie? I just wanted to give you a quick chance to give that a plug. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so we actually have two very exciting events that are going to be launching on National Science Week. So that starts on the 13th, 13th of August. So, yeah, I'm working with Remember Wild, which is Australia's first nature connection charity, uh, to put this virtual, virtual spider crab tour together. So that relies on um, 360-degree images to immerse people in spider crab aggregation. So we're very excited about that. And then, um, yeah, people have heard about our time-lapse cameras for a while now. So um, we actually gathered all the images for this season and we're putting that on a, on a web portal and anyone can come in and sort of help us analyse the data. So um, identify and count spider crabs and, and other marine life. So that will be um, on Zoo Universe. That's a project. That's a platform. Sorry for national uh, for citizen science. So yeah, look out for this these two projects that we'll be launching um, in a couple of weeks. Oh, that is so okay. exciting! We can just count <laughs> spider crabs from our living room behind our computer. Yes, exactly. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and the thing I can see, probably feel some people getting the creepy the heebie-jeebies from the idea of being surrounded <laughs> by spider crabs in a 360 tour whereas i think others will be really excited about this um look as you said you've got the seminar coming up through cie and then we've got the science week event to tease um how can people find out more information about the work you're doing and sort of keep in touch with this elodie yeah, so as always, we'll uh, promote all these events on the newsletter so people can go on Spider Crab Watch on iNaturalist and scrolling down under the map, they will see the link to sign up to the newsletter. Uh, otherwise, they can follow me on, on social media, Elodie Compass, I'm on most platforms. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll be sharing the news there and on, on scuba diving groups and the Spider Crab pages on Facebook as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us multiple times this year, Elodie. It's always good to get you on air, and I have a feeling we'll probably be talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, always. All right, that was Elodie Compress. We're talking all things crabby. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Thank you, Wayne. You are listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR, where the time is 9.37. Our next guest is Dr Alice Clement, an evolutionary biologist and paleontologist at Flinders University, who describes herself as a lungfish lover, so much so that I saw on the socials that she went to the current All About Horridus expedition at Melbourne Museum, which is the big Triceratops, and had to swing by the lungfish to say hello. 
Welcome to Radio Marinara, Alice. Oh, good morning. You couldn't help yourself? You had to go and say hello? Oh, absolutely not. I go in and say hello to those little beasties every time I'm in Melbourne, if I can. <laughs> Do they They're say hello back? And yeah, they, they wave. Yeah. I, I believe they wave. They've got a twinkle in their eye. I'm sure they recognise me. <laughs> So, as I said earlier, lungfish lover, lungfish enthusiast, you certainly are fond of the lungfish, and some listeners may not even know what a lungfish is. Can you tell us a little bit about this fish? Absolutely. So, lungfish are these great evolutionary survivors. So, their lineage stretches back some 400 million years, um, but we do still have lungfish living today. So, there's a, a species here in Australia, which is by far the cutest one, I believe, but there's also species in Africa and one in South America. And as their name suggests, lungfish, they actually also have lungs in addition to their gills. So they're able to breathe uh, both in water, you know, as most fish do, but also out of water in exactly the same way that we do. So, so does that mean that they are kind of that link between the ocean and the life that evolved on land that turned into us eventually? Yeah, absolutely. So they're a really good uh, animal to look at for people like me who are trying to study that link of that first step from water to land or the fish tetrapod transition, as we describe it. And, yeah, I think lungfish are so special mostly because they're sort of like our closest fishy cousins. So you and I are considered more closely related to a lungfish than a lungfish would be to a trout, for example. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Must be the twinkle so in the just, eye. We have that in common. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not just any old fish, but yeah, so they're the, the group that's most closely related to all the sort of terrestrial or land animals such as ourselves and, and frogs and, and birds and things. And now, you mentioned, you know, 400 million years ago, so that's, you know, that's quite a while ago. <laughs> that's a long time, yeah. <laughs> but the ones that we know are around now, they kind of disappeared for a little while, didn't they, as far as we weren't aware of them? Yeah, so the, the best story in relation to this is the coelacanth, which is a relative of the lungfish, so they're both known as lobe-fin fish, and the coelacanth was, yes, yeah, has this long uh, fossil record stretching back 400 million years ago. But then suddenly, about 66 million years ago, the fossil record is suddenly, um, you know, the coelacanth fossils completely disappear. And, of course, many listeners will recognise that that's the same time that many animals, such as most of the dinosaurs, also went extinct. And so it was long thought that coelacanths had gone extinct alongside the dinosaurs. Sorry for the uh, airport announcement the airport in the background. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure people sitting around you are loving the um, conversation that's going on. They're listening, going, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. I'm getting some strange looks, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so seal accounts had long been thought to be extinct for 66 million years. But in the 30s, some fishermen pulled up this weird-looking fish from the depths of Africa, and it was identified as a seal account. And so now we know that there are these there's two species of the living coelacanth, Latimeria, um, and they're, they're beautiful fish. But, yeah, we don't know much about them because they exist in the deep sea, which is why they probably remain, uh, you know, undiscovered by humans for, for so long. 
Yeah, thank you for leading me into that question because I did when I spoke to you on Friday. I did mention that my four-year-old son asked me about the difference between a lungfish and a coelacanth. So, budding scientist, which four-year-old asks that kind of question? Uh, it's it's the octonauts uh, completely to blame for it, and Amazing. I was just impressed that he could say the word coelacanth. I know, but he him. was right into it. Um, now I'm going to lead on to some of the research you've been doing. I. You know, as we do for all the guests that come on, we have a bit of a look to see what they've been up to. And some of your work is amazing. And you had a pub paper published in Nature a couple of years ago. Now, I'm going to read out the title. People at home, don't worry, you don't have to understand it. Alpistostengi and the Origin of the Vertebrate Hand. So, first yeah. up, can you tell us about what's an, what's an Alpistostengi? And what's it got to do with our hands? <laughs> Absolutely. So Elpistus Digi is this beautiful oh, animal got it. from <laughs> you're very close. Yeah. Uh, it's this beautiful animal uh, known from Quebec in Canada. And so uh, researchers uh, from Flinders University, such as myself and John Long, worked with Richard Cloutier from Canada, who helped to unearth this amazing specimen and near complete individual of this what we describe as a stem tetrapod. So people might be familiar with an animal called tiktalic, uh, which is, you know, spawned a load of those memes about fish leaving the water. And, you know, we can blame it for all of today's woes, as it were. <laughs> but Elpistostegi is a, um, a very close relative of tiktalic. But the beauty of Elpistostegi is it's a near-complete animal known so we know its entire skeleton whereas tiktalic although it's known from multiple specimens we still don't know all the aspects of its anatomy um but in any case yeah we got to work on this beautiful fossil for um a couple of years ago and by using modern powerful scanning technology so x-rays such as you find in a hospital we're able to now look inside fossils and so we can uncover whole new aspects that weren't visible to the naked eye before. So we don't just look at the external surface of the fossil anymore, we can actually look at the internal arrangement of bones. And so by doing that, uh, we were able to uncover the series of bones in the fish's fin. And so it's got a, a bone, you know, similar to what, exactly the same as the humerus we have in our forearm, and then same as the radius and ulna we have in our arm as well. But all the way down, there's a series of, of more and more bones in the fin, and we actually found the first instance of digits, so as in fingers, preserved within a fish's fin. So this is a great animal showing how the sequence of character acquisition changed as we move from fish living in the water to animals walking around on land with fingers and toes. That's pretty amazing. And you also had some work published recently where you looked inside the ancient fish's heads. Is that the same technique you use for that, to look at brain yeah. space? Yeah, absolutely. So that's my favorite thing to do. I'm, I'm starting to get really into, <laughs> into brain evolution and, and Love trying it. to understand. <laughs> so what is, because um, you, you published an article about that recently as well. What, what is so interesting about the, the brain space of, of these fish that you study? Yeah, well, I think so. The, the brain space within the skull can reflect what the brain might have looked like in life. But of course, I'm you know I'm studying fossils that are hundreds of millions of years old, and fossils tend to only preserve the hardest parts of the skeleton, so the, the bones, and so the the soft brain doesn't tend to be preserved. But we're figuring out a way to look at that internal cavity and use it as a proxy for what the brain would have looked like in life. 
And then once we can do that, we can look at the different brain regions and their relative size to one another and how they change through evolution and over time. And we can make inferences about whether a certain sense, such as your sense of smell or sense of vision, is becoming more important for that animal or less important. We know whether that brain size is is growing or reducing over time. And And what does... Sorry, what does that yeah. uh, and and how does that relate to the lungfish? Because uh, I'm 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 seeing this uh, uh, poor lungfish from the uh, from the museum now going into the scanner and being <laughs> X-rayed and held down. And uh, wh- what has come out of this um, regarding the the brain space and what does it mean? Yeah. So well, but I'm I'm looking at the lungfish as as well as trying to look at the brain changes in the their closely related stem tetrapods. So to understand how the brains change over that fish tetrapod transition. Uh, But lungfish are showing us that throughout their entire evolution, we're seeing a gradual increase um, and the area of the brain related to olfaction, so to smell, is always seems to be quite large and it can even increase over time. Whereas other parts of the brain, such as uh, where the optic lobes, so the part of the brain that... um, uh, Uh, deals with vision, remains very small in this group, and that's in contrast to other fish that really rely on vision a lot. And so we're able to make inferences about how these lungfish lived, and and so that sense of smell has obviously been very important to them throughout their evolutionary history. And uh, so what I'm also trying to do is to look at this, how these changes happen, you know, over the fish tetrapod transition and trying to identify how brains changed as they moved from being animals living in water to animals living on land in a completely new environment. Yeah, look, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave you to go and get on your I plane, Alice. I have so Alice. many there more questions. <laughs> so many more questions. And I want to, I've got a whole sheet of questions here that I wanted to get through. And one of the things, you know, you're quoted as saying that perhaps some of the nervous system traits remain in us still. And so what we're going to do is get you back on to actually start to talk about some of the other projects that you're involved in and what's going on. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you, Alice, um, particularly as someone who knows next to nothing about paleontology. I've already <laughs> learned so much and I've still got so much to go. We appreciate your time and I hope you get on your flight safely and get home quickly. <laughs> Thank you. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. That was you. Dr. Alice Clement um, talking about lungfish brains and the fact like just looking what the empty space can tell us. It's yeah. sort of that, you know, the nothingness. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, can't wait to continue this conversation. Uncommon Sense, Tuesdays from 9am with me, Amy Mullins. Join me for weekly long-form conversations about federal politics, international affairs, history, art and the natural world. Uncommon Sense shines a light on the issues we face and explores them in new, surprising and thought-provoking ways. Tune in to Uncommon Sense via FM, digital, online, on demand or via the app. Hi, I'm David Suzuki and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. 
You are listening to 3RRR, and before Amy Mullins um, slowed us right on down, you were listening to Amel and the Sniffers, their song Hurts. It's, again, another road trip song for me. And Amel and the Sniffers are playing around town at the moment, including the Frankston Pier Band Room on the 4th of August. I'll be there, so come and say hi if you're there. Sounds like fun. And with us on Skype this morning, everybody's favourite Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. Welcome. G'day, how are you going there? Yeah, oh, pretty good. We've been there. Well, <laughs> jumping around the studio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, uh, so listeners can tell that uh, these days we've got the webcam on Skype so everybody can see us rock out um, <laughs> in the Triple R studios here. Um, Neil, it's been, it's been a really interesting uh, few months for the penguins in St Kilda. I keep getting uh, photos uh, sent to me by Ivan Lee, who is one of the penguin research volunteers from Earthcare St Kilda, and they're sitting on eggs. What is yeah, going I think, on? Uh, Ivan is actually the Clark Kent of Port Phillip Bay <laughs> reporters. He's, he's a great uh, source of information. And, uh, yeah, so Ivan uh, probably got the same message uh, uh, to you as to me, um, that there were actually eggs um, recorded there on the 3rd of, I think, of June, which was uh, the Earthcare Penguin study going out checking the colony. And uh, there were uh, several nests, and uh, then they heard babies on uh, July the 3rd, which prompted me to think, hmm, looks like there could be possibly a, a double or triple clutching year on, on happening. So I recall that in the early days of the penguin study, uh, it, there, was, there were a number of occasions when uh, pairs would produce several clutches of, uh, in, in a year. Is that weather related, Neil? Is that what's going on here, or do you know what? Why? Uh, well, I think well, food, food? availability yeah. is a key thing, okay. But uh, I did check the um, uh, um, the particular year I was interested in. It was the ninety three ninety four year uh, when there were um, uh, thirteen out of forty four breeding sites in that year actually had double clutches. Wow. And so the uh, checking the, the rainfall for that year for Melbourne, uh, it was um, very much above average. And so what does that I think mean? definitely rainfall could be a factor. So that's like nutrients, feed, fish, potential food yeah, in that that's area. It. Yeah. So, but also the other thing though is that uh, the curious thing about these little penguins is that they uh, they actually have. Um, that not too many other birds will actually do this or other penguin species, in fact, that will double clutch. But the penguins are really quite uh, calculating in their, in their chances so, uh, and they're determined to actually pr- produce the next generation. So they have what is called a brood reduction strategy where they'll uh, actually feed the, the strongest chick first. Oh. So out of, they've got two two babies in the oh, nest. So they do play with... favourites. Oh, the trauma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so once the strongest one has had its fill and it's satisfied and is sort of lying back like a you know, fat and all that, so then the other one will get a, get its a chance. So And the, the, the idea of that, I'm sure it makes sense, really, is that uh, in times of food oh, scarcity, uh, which will up. happen Open from time wide. to time, uh, that at least one chick will survive. And, you know, I've also heard, I don't know if this is true, that sometimes in really bad years the penguins decide to just not breed at all because they don't see the point or they're not food. Is that true? Yeah, well, I think it's probably related to if they just don't uh, attain, you know, the, the right kind of condition where they, they will be capable of eating, probably producing eggs, you know. So they need to get in reasonable conditions to do that. And... They need to also uh, be able to maintain their own uh, 
bloody health whilst feeding these uh, these pair of babies that were just uh, uh, put on weight incredibly fast. So they were as fat as their parents, but they as heavy as their parents by the time they were about four Thanks for that update, Neil. That's Take really fascinating. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll stay in touch to see how they're going once they get And um, you also had uh, something else that you wanted to chat about regarding the Maribyrnong River. Yeah, uh, it's a great development, really, is that um, uh, the Yarra Riverkeeper Association have had uh, a Maribyrnong officer operating for a little while now, but they're taking the next steps to actually uh, uh, work with the community groups uh, out within the catchment to uh, develop a strategy for actually creating Maribyrnong River Keeper, which doesn't happen overnight and uh, you know, naturally for it to be effective uh, because it involves a lot of discussion and uh, taking on board a whole lot of issues and synthesizing and communicating well with the, across different sectors. Uh, it's something that does take a bit of time to actually put in place and also to be able to sustain it. So it is really where that you need a paid person, person in such a role because it's a, a, a more than a full-time job, basically. Um, so, yeah, so th there, there was a workshop uh, earlier in the week uh, over at the Essendon Rowing Club, which is a nice venue looking overlooking the river, uh, to work through. Uh, it was facilitated by Ross Colliver, who did a great job. There were probably uh, about 30 to 40 people there from different groups within the catchment, uh, you know, so it goes up quite a, quite an extensive catchment going up towards Gisborne and uh, Mount Macedon. Uh, and yes, and a whole host of issues that are, that, that catchment faces that uh, and that uh, the river needs a voice to, to address. Yeah, ain't that the truth? So yeah, well, we will uh, keep up to date with you about that. Thank you so much. That was Neil Blake, Port Phillip Baykeeper, keeping us informed about all things water, bay and uh, river keepers as well. Thanks, Neil. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's perfect harmony with the show, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all things wet and salty. Uh, look, thank you for joining us for an hour. We had an incredible show. We had Mark Rodriguez on from Parks Victoria. We had Alady Compras from Deakin University, Alice Clement from Flinders University, and, of course, our own baykeeper, Neil. So thank you for all of them for coming on, and thank you, Fom. Thank you. And next week on the show... Uh, next week on the show, we're going to have myself and Cabin Boy, and we're going to be joined by ne Dr. Nerida Wilson from the University of Western Australia. It's about the only time of the year we can get people from WA on is because <laughs> there's only a two-hour time difference. She's going to talk to us about uh, sea dragon search, which is mapping individual sea dragons across the southern part of Australia. And I'm also going to throw in a question because she was one of the people that saw the world's largest animal, the giant Sophonophore when she was doing some deep sea research. So oh, we're going to have to talk about that as well. And we're, as I um, teased earlier, we're going to have Joni Pinney Fitzsimmons on talking about stingrays vocalising. So awesome show on next week. And Can't wait. I hope everyone has found an excuse to get outside and get wet and salty. We will too. Bye. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.